Section 8. Book 2, Part 3 of The Histories by Publius Cornelius Tacitus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Morgan Scorpion. The Histories by Publius Cornelius Tacitus. Translated by Alfred John Church and William Jackson Brodrib. Book 2. March to August, A.D. 69, Part 3. 2.37. I find it stated by some authors that either the dread of or the disgust felt for both emperors, whose wickedness and infamy were coming out every day into more open notoriety, made the two armies hesitate whether they should not seize their strife, and either themselves consult together, or allow the Senate to choose an emperor, and that, for this reason, Otho's generals recommended a certain measure of delay, Paulinus especially entertaining hopes for himself, on the ground that he was the senior among the men of consular rank, that he was well known as a soldier, and had attained great distinction and fame by his campaigns in Britain. Though I would allow that there were some few who in their secret wishes prayed for peace in the stead of disorder, for a worthy and blameless emperor in the room of men utterly worthless and wicked, Yet I cannot suppose that Paulinus, wise as he was, could have hoped in an age thoroughly depraved to find such moderation in the common herd, as that men, who in their passion for war had trampled peace underfoot, should now in their affection for peace renounce the charms of war. Nor can I think that armies differing in language and in character could have united in such an agreement, or that lieutenants and generals, who were for the most part burdened by the consciousness of profligacy, of poverty and of crime, could have endured any emperor who was not himself stained by vice, as well as bound by obligation to themselves. 2.38 That old passion for power which has ever been innate in man increased and broke out as the empire grew in greatness. In a state of moderate dimensions equality was equally preserved. But when the world had been subdued, when all rival kings and cities had been destroyed, and men had leisure to covet wealth which they might enjoy in security, the early conflicts between the patricians and the people were kindled into flame. At one time the tribunes were factious, at another the consuls had unconstitutional power. It was in the capital and the forum that we first essayed civil wars. Then rose C. Marius, sprung from the very dregs of the populace, and L. Sulla, the most ruthless of the patricians, who perverted into absolute dominion the liberty which had yielded to their arms. After them came C. N. Pompeius, with a character more disguised but no way better. Henceforth men's sole object was supreme power. Legions formed of Roman citizens did not lay down their arms at Pharsalia and Philippi, much less were the armies of Otho and Vitellius likely of their own accord to abandon their strife. They were driven into civil war by the same wrath from heaven, the same madness among men, the same incentives to crime. That these wars were terminated by what we may call single blows, was owing to want of energy in the chiefs. But these reflections on the character of ancient and modern times have carried me too far from my subject. I now return to the course of events. 2.39 Otho, having started for Brixellium, the honours of supreme command devolved on his brother Titianus, while the real power and control were in the hands of the prefect Proculus. K. 
Celsus and Paulinus, as no one made any use of their skill, did but screen with their idle title of general the blunders of others. The tribunes and centurions were perplexed to see that better men were despised, and that the most worthless carried the day. The common soldiers were full of eagerness, but liked to criticise rather than to obey the orders of their officers. It was resolved to move the camp forward to the fourth milestone from Bedriacum, but it was done so unskilfully that though it was spring, and there were so many rivers in the neighbourhood, the troops were distressed for want of water. Then the subject of giving battle was discussed. Otho in his dispatches ever urging them to make haste, and the soldiers demanding that the emperor should be present at the conflict. Many begged that the troops quartered beyond the paders should be brought up. It is not so easy to determine what was best to be done, and it is to be sure that what was done was the very worst. 2.40 They started for a campaign rather than for a battle, making for the confluence of the Padus and Adua, a distance of sixteen miles from their position. Celsus and Paulinus remonstrated against exposing troops wearied with a march and encumbered with baggage to any enemy, who, being himself ready for action and having marched barely four miles, would not fail to attack them, either when they were in the confusion of an advance, or when they were dispersed and busy with the work of entrenchment. Titianus and Proculus, overcome in argument, fell back on the imperial authority. It was true that a Numidian had arrived at full gallop with an angry message from Otho, in which the emperor, sick of delay and impatient of suspense, sharply rebuked the inactivity of the generals, and commanded that matters should be brought to an issue. 2.41 the same day, while Caecina was engaged on the construction of a bridge, two tribunes of the Praetorian Guard came to him and begged an interview. He was on the point of hearing their proposals and sending back his own, when the scouts arrived at headlong speed with the news that the enemy were close at hand. The address of the tribunes was thus abruptly terminated. Thus it remained uncertain whether deception or treason, or some honourable arrangement, had been in their thoughts. Caecina dismissed the tribunes and rode back to the camp. There he found that Fabius Valens had given the signal for battle, and that the troops were under arms. While the legions were casting lots for the order of march, the cavalry charged and, strange to say, were kept only by the courage of the Italian legion from being driven back on the entrenchments by an inferior force of the Othonianists. These men, at the sword's point, compelled the beaten squadron to wheel round and resume the conflict. The line of the Vitellianists was formed without hurry, for though the enemy was close at hand, the sight of their arms was intercepted by the thick brushwood. In Otho's army the generals were full of fear, and the soldiers hated their officers. The baggage-wagons and the camp followers were mingled with the troops, and as there were steep ditches on both sides the road, it would have been found too narrow even for an undisturbed advance. Some were gathering around their standards, others were seeking them. Everywhere was heard the confused shouting of men who were joining the ranks or calling to their comrades, and each, as he was prompted by courage or by cowardice, rushed on to the front or slunk back to the rear. 2.42 From the consternation of panic their feelings passed under the influence of a groundless joy into languid indifference. Some persons spreading the lie that Vitellius's army had revolted. 
Whether this rumour was circulated by the spies of Vitellius, or originated in the treachery or in accident among the partisans of Otho, has never been clearly ascertained. Forgetting their warlike ardour, the Othonianists at once greeted the foe, as they were answered by an angry murmur. They caused apprehensions of treachery in many of their own side, who did not know what the greeting meant. Then the enemy's line charged with its ranks unbroken, in strength and in numbers superior. The Othonianists, scattered and weary as they were, met the attack with spirit. The ground was so entangled with trees and vineyards that the battle assumed many forms. They met in close and in distant conflict, in line and in column. On the raised road they stood foot to foot. They pushed with their bodies and their shields, and, and, ceasing to throw their javelins, they struck through helmets and breastplates with swords and battle-axes. Recognising each other and distinctly seen by the rest of the combatants, they were fighting to decide the whole issue of the war. 2.43 In an open plain between the Pedus and the road, two legions happened to meet. On the side of Vitellius was the twenty-first, called the Rapax, a corps of old and distinguished renown. On that of Otho was the first, called Adjutrix, which had never before been brought into the field, but was high-spirited and eager to gain its first triumph. The men of the first, overthrowing the foremost ranks of the twenty-first, carried off the eagle. The twenty-first, infuriated by this loss, not only repulsed the first and slew the legate, or Phidias Beninus, but captured many colours and standards from the enemy. In another quarter the thirteenth legion was put to flight by a charge of the fifth, the fourteenth was surrounded by a superior force. Otho's generals had long since fled, and Caecina and Valens strengthened their army with the reserves. New reinforcements were supplied by Varus Alphenius with his Batavians. They had routed the band of gladiators, which had been ferried across the river, and which had been cut to pieces by the opposing cohorts while they were actually in the water. Thus, flushed with victory, they charged the flank of the enemy. 2.44. The centre of their line had been penetrated, and the Othonianists fled on all sides in the direction of Bedriacum. The distance was very great, and the roads were blocked up with heaps of corpses. Thus the slaughter was the greater, for captives taken in civil war can be turned to no profit. Suetonius Paulinus and Licinius Proculus, taking different roads, avoided the camp. Vedius Aquila, legate of the thirteenth legion, in the blindness of fear, fell in the way of the furious soldiery. Late in the day he entered the entrenchments, and found himself the centre of a mob of clamorous and mutinous fugitives. They did not refrain from abuse or actual violence. They reviled him as a deserter and traitor, not having any specific charge against him, but all, after the fashion of the mob, imputing to him their own crimes. Titianus and Celsus were favoured by the darkness. By that time the sentries had been posted, and the soldiers reduced to order. Annius Gallus had prevailed upon them by his prayers, his advice, and his personal influence, not to aggravate the disaster of their defeat by mutual slaughter. Whether the war was at an end, or whether they might choose to resume the conflict, the vanquished would find in union the sole mitigation of their lot. The spirit of the rest of the army was broken but the Praetorians angrily complained that they had been vanquished, not by valour, but by treachery. The Vitellianists, indeed, they said, gained no bloodless victory. 
Their cavalry was defeated, a legion lost its eagle. We have still the troops beyond the Pedus and Otho himself. The legions of Moesia are coming. A great part of the army remained at Bedriacum. These certainly were never vanquished, and if it must be so, it is on the battlefield that we shall fall with most honour. Amid all the exasperation or terror of these thoughts, the extremity of despair yet roused them to fury rather than to fear. 2.45 The army of Vitellius bivouacked at the fifth milestone from Bedriacum. The generals did not venture an assault on the enemy's camp that same day. Besides, a capitulation was expected. Though they were without baggage and had marched out only to fight, it was sufficient protection to them that they had arms and were victorious. On the following day, as the feeling of Otho's army was evident, and those who had been most furious were inclined to repent, envoys were sent, nor did the generals of Vitellius hesitate to grant conditions of peace. The envoys, indeed, were detained for some little time, and this circumstance caused some doubt, as it was not known whether they had obtained their object. Before long, however, they returned, and the camp was thrown open. Both victors and vanquished melted into tears, and cursed the fatality of civil strife with a melancholy joy. There, in the same tents, did they dress the wounds of brothers or of kinsmen. Their hopes, their rewards were all uncertain. Death and sorrow were sure. And no one had so escaped misfortune as to have no bereavement to lament. Search was made for the body of the legate Ophidius, and it was burnt with the customary honours. A few were buried by their friends. The multitude that remained were left above ground. 2.46 Otho was awaiting news of the battle free from alarm and resolved in purpose. First came gloomy tidings, and then fugitives from the field, making known that all was lost. The zeal of the soldiers did not wait for the emperor to speak. They bade him be of good cheer, telling him that he had still fresh forces, and that they would themselves endure and dare to the last. This was no flattery. They were fired by a furious impulse to seek the battlefield, and raise again the fallen fortunes of their party. Those who stood at a distance stretched out their arms, those who were near clasped the emperor's knees, and Plotius Firmus was the most zealous of them all. This man, who was prefect of the Praetorian Guard, repeatedly besought Otho not to desert an army so loyal and soldiers so deserving. There was more courage in bearing trouble, he said, than in escaping from it. The brave and the energetic cling to hope, even in spite of fortune. The cowardly and the indolent are hurried into despair by their fears. While he was thus speaking, as Otho assumed a relenting or a stern expression, the soldiers cheered or groaned. Nor was it only the Praetorians, who were peculiarly Otho's troops, that thus acted. Those who had been sent on from Mauricia declared that the approaching army was as firmly resolved, and that the legions had entered Aquileia. No one therefore can doubt that the war might have been renewed with its terrible disasters, and its uncertainties both for victors and vanquished. 2.47 Otho himself was opposed to all thoughts of war. He said, I hold that to expose such a spirit, such a courage as yours, to any further risk is to put too high a value on my life. The more hope you hold out to me, should I choose to live, the more glorious will be my death. Fortune and I now know each other. You need not reckon for how long, for it is particularly difficult to be moderate with that prosperity which you think you will not long enjoy. The civil war began with Vitellius. 
He was the first cause of our contending in arms for the throne. The example of not contending more than once shall belong to me. By this let posterity judge of Otho. Vitellius is welcome to his brother, his wife, his children. I need neither revenge nor consolation. Others may have held the throne for a longer time, but no one can have left it with such fortitude. Shall I suffer so large a portion of the youth of Rome and so many noble armies to be again laid low and to be lost to the state? Let this thought go with me, that you were willing to die for me. But live, and let us no longer delay, lest I interfere with your safety, you with my firmness. To say too much about one's end is a mark of cowardice. Take as the strongest proof of my determination the fact that I complain of no one. To accuse either gods or men is only for him who wishes to live. 2.48 After having thus spoken, he courteously entreated all in arms befitting their age and rank to go at once, and not exasperate the anger of the conqueror by staying. With the young he used his authority, with the old his prayers, and still his look was calm, his speech collected, as he checked the unseasonable tears of his friends. He gave orders that those who were departing should be furnished with boats and carriages. He destroyed all memorials and letters remarkable for the expression of zeal for himself or their abuse of Vitellius. He distributed some gratuities, but sparingly, and not like a man who was soon to die. Then he even administered consolation to Salvius Cocianus, his brother's son, a very young man, who was anxious and sorrowful, praising his affection while he rebuked his fear. Do you think, he said, that Vitellius will show so ruthless a temper that he will not make even this return for the preservation of his whole family? By hastening my end I earn the clemency of the conqueror. It is not in the extremity of despair, but while my army yet cries for battle, that I have sacrificed to this state my last chance. I have obtained enough reputation myself, enough nobility for my family. Successor to the Julii, the Claudii, the Servii, have been the first to bring the imperial dignity into a new family. Enter then on life with a brave heart, and never entirely forget, or remember too vividly, that Otho was your uncle. 2.49 After this he dismissed everyone, and took some repose. He was now pondering in his heart the last cares of life, when his attention was distracted by a sudden tumult, and he was told of the confusion and outrageous conduct of the soldiers. They were threatening with death all who attempted to depart, and were extreme in their violence against Virginius, whose house they had blockaded and were besieging. After rebuking the ringleaders of the tumult, he returned and employed himself in granting interviews to those who were departing, till all had left in safety. Towards evening he quenched his thirst with a draught of cold water. Two daggers were brought to him. He tried the edge of each, and then put one under his head. After satisfying himself that his friends had set out, he passed a tranquil night, and it is even said that he slept. At dawn he fell with his breast upon the steel. Hearing a groan from the dying man, his freedmen and slaves, and Plotius Firmus, prefect of the Praetorian Guard, came in. They found but one wound. His funeral was hastily performed. He had made this the subject of earnest entreaties, anxious that his head might not be cut off and subjected to indignities. The Praetorian cohorts carried his body with praises and tears, covering his wound and his hands with kisses. 
Some of the soldiers killed themselves near the funeral pile, not moved by remorse or by fear, but by the desire to emulate his glory, and by love of their prince. Afterwards this kind of death became a common practice among all ranks at Bedriacum, at Placentia, and in the other camps. Of Otho was built a tomb unpretending, and therefore likely to stand. 2.50 Thus Otho ended his life in the thirty-seventh year of his age. He came from the municipal town of Ferentinum. His father was of consular, his grandfather of praetorian rank. His family on the mother's side was of less distinction, but yet respectable. What his boyhood and his youth had been, we have already shown. By two daring acts, one most atrocious, the other singularly noble, he earned in the eyes of posterity about an equal share of infamy and glory. I should think it unbecoming the dignity of the rank which I have undertaken to collect fabulous marvels, and to amuse with fiction the tastes of my readers. At the same time I would not venture to impugn the credit of common report and tradition. The natives of these parts related that on the day when the battle was being fought at Bedriacum, a bird of unfamiliar appearance settled in a much-frequented grove near Regium Lepidum, and was not frightened or driven away by the concourse of people, or by the multitude of birds that flocked round it, until Otho killed himself. Then it vanished. When they came to compute the time, it was found that the commencement and the end of the strange occurrence tallied with the last scenes of Otho's life. 2.51 at the funeral the mutinous spirit of the soldiers was kindled afresh by their sorrow and regret, and there was no one to check them. They turned to Virginius, and in threatening language, at one time besought him to accept the imperial dignity, at another to act as envoy to Cecina and Valens. Virginius secretly departed by a back way from his house, and thus managed to elude them when they burst in. Rubrius Gallus was charged with the petition of the cohorts which had been quartered at Brixellium an amnesty was immediately granted to them, while at the same time the forces which had been commanded by Flavius Sabinus signified through him their submission to the conqueror. 2.52 Hostilities had ceased everywhere, but a considerable number of the Senate, who had accompanied Otho from Rome, and had been afterwards left at Mutina, encountered the utmost peril. News of the defeat was brought to this place. The soldiers, however, rejected it as a false report, and judging the Senate to be hostile to Otho, watched their language, and put an unfavourable construction on their looks and manner. Proceeding at last to abuse and insults, they sought a pretext for beginning a massacre, while a different anxiety also weighed upon the senators, who, knowing that the party of Vitellius was in the ascendant, feared that they might seem to have been tardy in welcoming the conqueror. Thus they met in great alarm and distracted by a twofold apprehension. No one was ready with any advice of his own, but looked for safety in sharing any mistake with many others. The anxieties of the terrified assembly were aggravated when the Senate of Mutina made them an offer of arms and money, and, with an ill-timed compliment, styled them conscript fathers. 2.53 There then ensued a notable quarrel. Licinius Caecina inveighing against Marcellus Eprius for using ambiguous language. The rest indeed did not express their opinions, but the name of Marcellus, exposed as it was to odium the hateful recollection of his career as an informer, had roused in Caecina, who was an unknown man, and had lately been made a senator, the hope of distinguishing himself by making great enemies. The moderation of wiser men put an end to the dispute. They all returned to Bononia, 
intending there to deliberate again, and expecting further news in the meantime. At Bononia they posted men on the different roads to make inquiries of every newcomer. One of Otho's freedmen, on being questioned as to the cause of his departure, replied that he was entrusted with his master's last commands. Otho was still alive, he said, when he left him, but his only thoughts were for posterity, and he had torn himself from all the fascinations of life. They were struck with admiration, and were ashamed to put any more questions, and then the hearts of all turned to Vitellius. 2.54 Lucius Vitellius, the brother of the emperor, was present at their deliberations, and was preparing to receive their flatteries, when of a sudden Corinus, a freedman of Nero, threw them all into consternation by an outrageous falsehood. He asserted that, by the arrival of the 14th legion, joined to the forces from Brixellum, the victorious army had been routed and the fortunes of the party changed. The object of this fabrication was that the passports of Otho, which were beginning to be disregarded, might through more favourable news recover their validity. Corinus was conveyed with rapidity to the capital, but a few days after suffered the penalty of his crime by the order of Vitellius. The peril of the senators was increased by the soldiers of Otho's army, believing that the intelligence thus brought was authentic. Their alarm was heightened by the fact that their departure from Mutina and their desertion of the party had the appearance of a public resolution. They did not meet again for general deliberation, but every man consulted his own safety, till letters arrived from Fabius Valens which removed their fear. Besides, the very glory of Otho's death made the news travel more quickly. 2.55 at Rome, however, there was no alarm. The games of Ceres were attended as usual. When trustworthy messengers brought into the theatre the news that Otho was dead, and that all the troops in the capital had taken the oath to Vitellius under the direction of Flavius Sabinus, prefect of the city, the spectators greeted the name of Vitellius with applause. The people carried round the temples images of Galba, ornamented with laurel leaves and flowers, and piled chaplets in the form of a sepulchral mound near the lake of Curtius, on the very spot which had been stained with the blood of the dying man. In the Senate all the customary honours, which had been devised during the long reigns of other emperors, were forthwith decreed. Public acknowledgments and thanks were also given to the armies of Germany, and envoys were sent charged with congratulations. There was read a letter from Fabius Valens to the consuls, which was written in a not unbecoming style but they liked better the modesty of Caecina in not writing at all. 2.56. Italy, however, was prostrated under sufferings heavier and more terrible than the evils of war. The soldiers of Vitellius, dispersed through the municipal towns and colonies, were robbing and plundering and polluting every place with violence and lust. Everything, lawful or unlawful, they were ready to seize or to sell, sparing nothing sacred or profane. Some persons under the soldiers' garb murdered their private enemies. The soldiers themselves, who knew the country well, marched out rich estates and wealthy owners for plunder, or for death in case of resistance. Their commanders were in their power and dared not check them. Caecina, indeed, was not so rapacious as he was fond of popularity. Valens was so notorious for his dishonest gains and peculations that he was disposed to conceal the crimes of others. The resources of Italy had long been impaired, and the presence of so vast a force of infantry and cavalry, with the outrages, the losses, and the wrongs they inflicted, was more than it could well endure. 2.57 Meanwhile, Vitellius, as yet unaware of his victory, was bringing up the remaining strength of the army of Germany, just as if the campaign had yet to be fought. 
a few of the older soldiers were left in the winter quarters, and the conscription throughout Gaul was hastily proceeded with, in order that the muster-rolls of the legions which remained behind might be filled up. The defence of the bank of the Rhine was entrusted to Hordionius Flaccus. Vitellius himself added to his own army eight thousand men of the British conscription. He had proceeded a few days' march, when he received intelligence of the victory at Bedriacum, and of the termination of the war through Otho's death. He called an assembly, and heaped praises on the valour of the soldiers. When the army demanded that he should confer a question rank on Asiaticus his freedman, he checked the disgraceful flattery. Then, with his characteristic fickleness, in the privacy of a banquet, he granted the very distinction which he had publicly refused, and honoured with the ring of knighthood this same Asiaticus, a slave of infamous character, ever seeking power by unprincipled intrigues. End of Book 2, Part 3